Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Joining us on the S2 Cognition Podcast today is legendary football man Jack Marucci. Although he doesn't like the title, many refer to him as Football Yoda. Very smart he is. Jack is one of my favorite people in the sports industry. He's extremely humble for a man that has accomplished so much and has helped as many people as he has, especially players. He is a huge supporter of S2 Cognition and loves to discuss ways to link LSU's players' on-field performance and their cognitive ability. That interview is next on the S2 Cognition podcast. I appreciate you for uh, joining us today. This is Jack Marucci. Before we get into the, you know, how you got into the LSU staff, I, I want to briefly discuss you and the beautiful creation that is the Marucci bat. How did that come about? Uh, well, my son gave me the idea of, of wanting a wooden baseball bat because you know, we'd watch baseball and he, he, he liked the Bonds. He saw Barry Bonds originally, the, the color. He had a two-tone. It was a uh, like a mahogany handle and had a black um, barrel. And, um, you know, he, we were always playing in the backyard. We, we ended up having a wiffle ball stadium in the backyard. So we were kind of, <laughs> at the time, you know, pretty baseball-driven. And so I, I said, man, I love it. He wants to swing a wood bat. I mean, at this time, so this was about 2002-ish, you know, little kids aren't swinging wooden bats at the time. They're swinging mainly, you know, they're looking for the best metal bat you can, or their parents are looking for the best metal bat <laughs> to make their kid, they feel like they're going to give them an advantage. So <laughs> if, when they're that that young, you know, you're, you're, the bat probably is not going to be that big of a, uh, a help. <laughs> First of all, they got to be able to hit the ball. So – I thought it was really neat that he wanted that. So I would, I called all the, all the companies and all the ones that were prominent at the time. And the last one was Louisville slugger. I got a hold of one of their folks and said, uh, we're sorry. We, that's an inch too short. We just can't make them that short. And, and as you know, since Harrison was a great baseball player in college, oh, great. That, yes. Thank you. And, um, yes, you were. And um, <laughs> we all know that as you play baseball, an inch matters a lot. And that's as an adult. Could you imagine as a, a child? So it was important that we try to find something that, that fit them. So after um, we couldn't find anybody, then I went back to my eighth grade woodshop skills and bought a, a Lays. <laughs> uh, Harbor Freight just came out. They had one for $88 because I needed something with a bigger – you know, um, tail stock and headstock. So I, I got it. I got some wood from a, a through some resources. I found some wood and I made him his first bat. And um, that's where the the genesis of it was. Then then the other pieces got you know from relationships and gave me more opportunities through Eduardo Perez and so on and so forth. And that's how it that's how it basically started. So. Do you have a Big Poppy, Albert Pujols, Anthony Rizzo, Freddie Freeman, Ryan Howard story that you could share 
Uh, it doesn't have to be one of everybody, but those are the big names that I know that you guys right. were associated with. Uh, would love to hear a story or two. Um, one thing, first time I met Ortiz, we talked about, you know, we were talking about hitting. And it was just me and, and, and Dr. Brent Bankston. He would be kind of like my bat boy. <laughs> He's our orthopedic surgeon. So he actually took pictures of, you know, when I'm taking this and he goes, he goes, he was really listening to you, wasn't he? I said, I guess so. And here I am telling him about the bats and, and, the, and the geometry and what I thought. And so, but I use something today for these players. I talk about these, talk to the players about, let's not use numbers as goals. And what I mean by that, if you have to have, you know, they're pressing sometimes, man, I had four interceptions last year. I want six this year. I need 28 touchdown passes or whatever it may be. Then after the first two or three games, they don't have them. What do they do? They start pressing. and So they're looking at numbers all the time. I know a lot of the baseball players never wanted to know what their stats were. That's something you see commonly. And now you, I understand why. So Ortiz was telling me that he was always a – you know, always a good inside ball hitter. He, he could pull it, hit home runs. So a lot of pitchers obviously start recognizing this and they were throwing him outside. So he's lunging, he's struggling. He said they made a trade. They brought Adrian Gonzalez over. He's a big left-handed hitter from San Diego. And he says, look, change your approach. Change your approach. Go with it. Smack it off that big wall. You watch what happens. So as as this approach came in the season, he was hitting. His batting average really went up. This is the time you can see his batting average climbing. He had about two home runs, though. He says the reporters came in. They were probably about a month, month and a half in the season. And he said uh, – you know, they said, man, David, you only got two home runs. You, you, would you change something? What, what's going on? He goes, well, I'm, I'm not worried about the numbers. I'm not worried about the numbers. I'm worried about getting the ball in play, hitting the best I can. If they're going to throw me outside, I got a better approach now. I've changed my mindset. I'll keep peppering it. Ortiz says, about two and a half weeks later, I had 10 home runs because they were tired of getting peppered. <laughs> So they were trying to bust them in. So, I, I think it was a great way to look at the approach. Um, you know, so from that standpoint, you know, the interaction with baseball players was always fun. Um, you know, uh, one of the best was Sean Casey. He, he told us a story about um, he's playing for the Red Sox. And, um, man, he hit one off the wall. He gets thrown out at second. And uh, he goes, man, it was embarrassing. He goes, I did the exact same thing the second time. It goes off the wall. I get thrown out at second. He goes, Francona says, hey, Case, I need to talk to you. This is right after he gets thrown out. And uh, I think he was playing. I think it was a DH at the time. And he goes, what's up, Skip? He goes, do you have polio? Do you have polio or is there something wrong with you? He goes, you're the slowest human being I've ever seen. <laughs> he asked him if he had polio. 
So, uh, you know, obviously busting his chops, but, you know, <laughs> Sean Casey is this, you know, one of the greatest hitters, but he just cannot run. I mean, he's one of the <laughs> slowest human beings. And uh, he, he's the guy that got thrown out. He hit a ball out in left field. He got thrown out at first. <laughs> yeah. All kind of crap for that. But he's, he tells them he's probably one of the best. Him and um, Nick Swisher, brother, too, the funniest with, with some different stories. I, I've had guys call me. Brandon Ninjas called me when he was on deck about a thought he had for a bat. He put the, he put the uh, clubhouse guy on the phone. Then uh, And I didn't know they were playing a game. And all of a sudden he goes, hey, I got to go. And, then, and Jim Schminkel gets on. He goes, he was on deck. He had to go bat. So, I mean, just some of these funny, funny <laughs> stories and, and just enjoyable to listen to. You know, when, when the neat thing was when they were sneaking the bats in, Eduardo called it contraband. And, and <laughs> they would call and say, hey, man, I got a hit. Or it was just really a, a fun experience watching it grow with that and the word of mouth. So, yeah. And, and now you, more than anybody else that I'm aware of or that we interact with, really focus on the character piece of the player, right? And how do you measure that? What do you look at? Right. Why do you think that that is such a big deal? Is it just something you've learned over you know time? What? It's funny you said that. So right before I got on here with you guys, we befriended a, a Green Beret, and he just showed, look, this is without even noticing. I'm sitting with one of the coaches. And he went through traits that they looked for, and he put them up there. Character was the number one thing. He goes, nobody wants an a-hole. Nobody wants it. Look, we are tough guys. We're, we're rugged. We're, but nobody wants to deal with them. And, I, and, and everyone always thinks, oh, you need some of those guys. No, you don't. That is the biggest myth in anything. And when he was showing all these markers of talking about what do you, marks of character, what do you do when you don't think people are watching? We talk about it. That's one of the four traits that we talk about. It was so, so neat to see that, look, I, and the coach goes, this is exactly the premise. So character, we've studied over the last 20 years of our players. And one of the biggest two correlations was of successive players to sign a second contract, you have less than a 30% chance, was that we saw character was number one and, and, the, and the way your brain processes. So that's why the S2 to me was a – we had a passion for it. And look, nobody out there had it. Yeah. And, you know, there's other questionnaires you can take. I, I'm not a big questionnaire person because if you take these handwritten things or they may be biased, they may be biased in the way they, from the language, the vocabulary, or people could put answers what you think you'd want to hear, you know, if you're doing any of these character metrics. So, and I get it. You can ask the same question, come back around and whatever. But, but the S2 gave us an unbiased view. It gives a something that it was tangible. And look, we didn't know what it was going to see um, or find or reveal in a player. So that's why the company would stack some data. So I think it started, I think, Brandon, about eight years ago, I believe. Um, I mean, that's you know, it's a long time. And, and look, now we can see, you know, it's hard to, to, to battle when you get this type of data to say it's not accurate or, 
you, you can have all the arguments you want, but now we have results. And I think that's what's, and look, there's it, been an evolution, you know, it's not, and that's what makes great companies, right? Well, look, maybe we need to look at this a different way, but that's the evolution. And that's because you're not always going to say, oh, that my heart, you have a hypothesis or something. And, but you're willing to say, man, we, we, we didn't realize that we need to change this. So I think that's what has been so fun. And I, I don't think there's a day, a few days ago by, I'm talking to one of you guys. I mean, I know Harrison, we talk a lot, we talk <laughs> through things, we trade ideas, you know, I remember way back we talked about what are the traits for each position? I mean, that was something that we really wanted to see and look, it, it, it matters. And, um, you know, we make decisions. Um, I'm on our second coaching staff here. They're bought in. I mean, we had a meeting with the defense for over an hour. We went over these guys. It means something. So I think what's happening is you're educating the coach. Say, look, this is a tool that will assist you in making a better evaluation of the player or put him in a better position for success. That's why roster management's important. Find out what your guys can do or they can't do. That way you're not just wearing yourself out thinking, man, this guy can't do this. This guy, well, guess what? Right. It's the coaching. It's some people's brains are just processing things differently. That doesn't mean anybody's dumb. That doesn't mean anybody, um, you know, doesn't have a place on the team or you have, you brought this player in because they saw a talent. Now let's capture what they do well, or let's capture their strengths to put them in a better position. And this is what the S2 is done for. You transitioned to the question I wanted to ask you perfectly. You, you the move from athletic trainer to, is it director of performance? Do yeah. I have that title correct? Yeah, something like that. But uh, you made that transition about, about a year ago. Now you're kind of working with the coach to look at data sets and say, look, this is how we can get in the best position to be the most successful. Correct. And, you know, I was fortunate to be with coaches that allowed us to do it, that wanted it. I've always in my brain, you know, I took my age and used it for an advantage because of the experiences. And so what it did was allowed us to look at championship teams back when I was at Florida State and, and, the, and, and the championship teams here, looking at what are the commonalities of those teams. But guess what? We have to quantify it. You can't just say, oh, they had or a good guy. Hey, he was a smart player. Now, you know, that, that could go, but now we can quantify these things. And I think that's what I love about it. And, um, and I think it's, again, it was something that I always had a passion for and I knew there was something, there had to be something out there. Hey Jack. So, you know, I've been an LSU supporter fan for 48 years now growing up in the state. So I've known a lot about the right. the program, particularly athletic department and, and seen it go through these phases of, you know, going on top and then struggling a little bit going on top. And I've always found that LSU has been at the top with, res with respect to resources in facilities and, and, and those kinds of things. But it seems like in the last five to 10 years, you guys have made a shift into prioritizing things like, Hey, how do we take care of our players? How do how do we help them recover? What does the locker room look like? What does all these metrics like S2 and character and you know, rather than focusing on having the best weight room in the world, it's more now sort of athlete centered versus and I've noticed, you know, not just the football squad, right? I mean, 
a lot of LSU sports have have swung into the direction of being in the in the conversation at least for being on the podium or national championship caliber team. And that's just an outside observation, a, a little bit more inside than most people because I'm in I'm in your building a lot. But what what do you think has transitioned in this last decade yeah. to make LSU so dominant? I I I think it's a great observation because look, brick and mortar will take you so far. But it's it's the people that have the ideas transcending that into a, an athlete. So what you're doing is, yes, you have to have adequate facilities. But at the end of the day, you better have above average and excellent things that we can find to identify again back to what the players invested into the player and people, you know are different in so many ways, but they're almost also alike in so many ways. But when it comes to the brain and the way they learn, first of all, we've changed things dramatically because what you're talking about, the facilities, now we have these room, the, the, the virtual area room that these players can visualize the, the, the picture, not just watching film. I'm talking about actually an applied learning setting where they're going through the activity. And look, the S2 has allowed us to have credibility to say, look guys. So when they see our roster and they look at what a visual learner is versus a, maybe an intuitive learner, but at least we can say, look, here's where we're at here. Here's the majority of the club. Let's do this. And, and let me tell you that, even this year, again, I know Frank Wilson, running backs coach, has hit that hard. And let me tell you something. We have a running back, a couple of them, said to him, thank you. Thank you for doing that because I this is the way I learned. I need these type of walkthroughs. And, I, and that's, that's that was a couple of days ago, and Frank, Coach Frank told me, and the player appreciated it, that we were able to transcend that information to them. Because, look, guys, if we don't do that, if we don't have the facilities to uh, 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 accompany these kids to do these areas, what what I've learned, if a player goes out there and they watch film and, all right, let's go out here and, and let's go do it, they have anxiety. I would have anxiety. I don't learn that way. All you're thinking about, the guy's going to be yelling at you the whole time because I don't, I don't got it. I feel dumb. I feel like, holy cow, I'm supposed to know all this? And you've already handicapped the player because in the back of their mind, all they're thinking about, I don't know it. I don't know it. I'm going to get yelled at the whole time. So, I mean, that's a, that's a discussion that you and I have had quite frequently about our visual learning task is, you know, I think most institutions go about learning a playbook in a 2D space. It's, it's likely from an actual right. playbook, from a whiteboard, from film, which is great. That's and they right. also then subsequently quiz or test their players using that same format. But the problem becomes and the way the information most teams don't have is how does how do you how does that particular player take it from 2D space into 3D space, which is very different, knowing how proximal as a running back, how proximal I'm supposed to be to the end. Where is the receiver or where is the slot guy gonna be? in relationship to where I'm lined up or to what hole I'm hitting. And it's a very different, uh, you know, 
uh, approach than saying, hey, guys, we're going to listen, you know, we're going to learn the playbook and I'm going to quiz you on it. Kids are going to uh, nail exactly, you know, where it is on paper. But when you get into a dynamic 3D environment, um, and I know that, you know, it, it's probably for a discussion for another day, virtual reality uh, and just the strides that virtual reality has made in the last decade. I mean, it's it's right. it's moving at astronomical pace. Yeah. Um, it is so true. And it's like, say, with the quarterbacks. So if we put it up, you're watching film, but you're standing up in this room. And say if you have a too high safety position. Now the guy drops down. He's getting up in the box. Now you got a one high. What's the quarterback? So he's actually calling out the signal in the room. He's actually, you know, using his hands. Um, his he's he's in a stance of what he would be in. Then what happens as the play goes? He can call it out. Now you're onto something. Now these guys yeah. feel like, holy cow, that's what it feels like in the game. Right. And that's taken straight from the literature, Jack, is within the context. That's another really good point that you're bringing up about player development. And, and tr- from a training perspective, it is not just taking reps, even even if it's in 3D space. Right. You have to right. do it in the context. You have to in the context. move and, and, and engage in and, the way you would. And what I've learned on any of the performance testing that we do, we, we invested a lot with the offensive line this year. But any type of activity we do, we put them in their setting. If it's the route running, if it's looking at eye tracking, if it's looking at offensive line play, if it's looking at linebacker play, we try to simulate as close as we can what they're going to go through in the actual experience of playing. And that's how you have to pull the data from. And once you have it, you're never going to simulate exactly what they have in the game. But I tell you what. With the players' feedback and listen to what they say, you can create environments and create testing that they can say, wow, that's as close as it's going to be. And I think that's where the S2 puts it in. Look, the way we prep our guys, we've and as you guys know, over time, we evolved on how you prep a a person for this test or skill set. You have to have them ready like they're going to play in a game. Because you've got to be locked in, guys. If you're not, you, you probably won't perform well. And that's what this is. This is something that we can put them in an environment of, I'm going to find out how they process now. We're going to find out how, the, how their decision-making is. We're going to see if they can improvise. We're going to see how accurate they are and how quick they can make a decision. So that's what I think the S2 does. It, it ties all that in, what we just talked about prior. And I think it puts them in an environment of, okay, these are the decision makings that we have to have. I don't know of anything else that can do that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, Jack. And, and I mean, how many times have we had conversations with your players specifically to go through and say, hey, kind of how you make decisions in split second environments. And this is how you learn. And this is how you're going to understand playbook like we've just talked about. And how many guys have come back and said, holy cow, that's exactly right. Yes, I struggle taking right. 2D to 3D. So, uh, mm-hmm. Back to player development. There's two players we have on our roster now. If I didn't have this data, I would have no idea that this is the way they think. We have two players that are probably going to play or start for us, play a lot for us. The thing that I noticed, their accuracy was extremely high. Their speed was low. I went to both players. I said, very in a positive way, got great scores. 
here's the areas we may need to work in, but there's, there's an area that let me ask you about. You play a little slower than you probably should because you want to be accurate. And usually you see this in a very cerebral player. And this was two separate occasions. Both the times I said it, their eyes just got it huge. They go, that's exactly what I do. That's exactly what I do. And I've been told sometimes, you know, we play. And so I said, look, look, I'm not going to change your brain wiring right now, but I, go out and make mistakes. Go out and just play fast. Go off your gut. And that's what they've been doing through camp. They're getting better. The coach says, yes, we see a difference in them. They're reacting now. They're reacting um, to what their instincts tell them. So, look, that's the difference between a tip ball interception on a DB. That's a difference on a, a guard that's going to pull the trigger and make that block and don't hesitate when he gets on the second level. And, look, that's, that may be a win. That may be a whole – that may be a win for the team, the difference between a win and a loss. So I, I really enjoy talking to those players. They really appreciate it. So, look, they never knew why they were doing that. They had no idea. Now we have a why. It's because you're probably – you're overthinking it. You're a very highly intelligent individual. But let's go ahead and pull the trigger. Let's not worry about it. Make the mistakes. So what? They're not going to do anything to you. So that kind of – let them, I think, a little bit play freer, if that makes sense. Yeah, Brandon, I think you've talked about a ton. One of our measure is decision complexity. In their minds, these are the rules that they have to sift through to be able to execute it with precision accuracy, right? Yeah, totally. And and we get into this a lot with um, with coaches who, you know, we, we, make, we tend to make assumptions by the outcome. Right. And so uh, Jack and I laugh all the time about, you know, hey, so and so is a good decision maker because he's got a bunch of touchdowns. Turns out he may not even been making the right decision for that particular play. Same thing with decision complexity, where you do have these these players where you can ask them, you know, okay, you're a receiver. Uh, safety drops and the corner presses, what route do you run here? And they can spit it out right away. Or, But then what happens if the, if the end comes over, presses you a little, and the corner pulls off, now what do you do? And they can regurgitate it right away. But when the ball is snapped and you are forced to make that decision in less than a quarter of a second, that's where they struggle with the execution. Right. And so it's less about knowing the rules and more about executing the rules. And the way we found at the college level that typically shows up is it's hesitation. Right. These kids will hesitate. They'll take a couple of seconds and then they're late. Where as they move up the chain, like in the professional levels, they've been yelled at so much about being slow or late. They just run the wrong route. Uh, and so you see, you know, they call it a miscommunication or or whatever, but but ultimately they couldn't make the decision rapidly enough and ran the wrong route. Um, and and yeah, and so these are one of the things where I, the relationship with LSU has been so profound for us. It's like, okay, well, we know we, we can take the conceptual framework of yeah. what we know on how to work on this in the lab and go to a guy like Jack, go to a guy like, you know, Corey Raymond, and say, okay, here is the here's what's happening cognitively. Can we develop ways to target this and to work with a receiver on this or a DB on this to be able to to make him quicker in the way he executes his decisions? Uh, or as you know, as we also have seen, Jack uh, right is it now this kid? We're not we're not having him 
decide between three options, uh, we're limiting to just two. Like, hey, we're the it's A or B, and those you're are talking about the receivers. Yeah. But even on you talk a little bit about the DBs, you know, sometimes we always talk about the perception speed. If you think he's going to play a press corner, but maybe he needs a bell a little bit because he's, he struggles with playing right up on an individual, and it becomes a little too fast for him, or you know, he needs to see it from a little, maybe a couple yards back, and. You know, that way you position your DB, um, you give him a little bit more an advantage, too. I think that's a big piece that gets overlooked, too, because we assume, well, and we, and we have a player right now with that. And, and so we may have to change some of this technique because of that. Well, Jack, I hate to I hate to bring up one of your your all time greats, but, we, you know, we we made this decision with Deion Jones. Yeah. Right. I mean, early in his career, he was playing up on the line uh, as an outside backer because of his size. Primarily, his perception speed was a little bit on the lower side, but his tracking, right. his ability to broaden his attention, see the whole field was was phenomenal. So, hey, why don't we try pulling him off the line a little bit, giving him some time and allowing him to see the whole field? Turns out the guy's, a, you know, Oprah. pretty good defense or pretty good linebacker. Yeah, he's probably one of the top. Uh, yeah, he's really good. Yeah really good so great point um and and again we're we're finding out what these particular players do well from their brain and if you find that and tap into it all it does is give the player confidence too we know that it gives them so much more confidence you know they're, they're not thinking man maybe there is something wrong maybe i'm not that good but let's let's make sure we've maximized what we can do to help that's a little insightful nugget right there, Jack. I'd love for you to talk uh, just just for a brief second about I think that the general public and the average fan, the average LSU fan, probably thinks, you know, all 90 scholarship guys you have on there have this just unbelievable confidence. They're the best. They think they're the right. best. And, and they may even portray that. But what well, you know? What do you yeah. see? You know, in a in a stack twenty nineteen national championship, potentially best roster ever. How much did emotion and confidence and those kind of things play into those players? If you look at that team, that particular team, first thing that comes to your head is going to be character and process. <laughs> um, you talk about how fans talk about players or pundits evaluate players. A lot of times they're basing it off of physical skill. That's what they all do. What's a five-star? Well, a five-star is a guy that's in the eighth, ninth grade. He's the biggest yep. and the fastest. That's your five-star. And <laughs> when they get to college is where it really starts to separate because now the speed of the game is equivalent almost to the NFL game. So now all these guys that were the five-stars, what holds them back? And what the 19 team had was that um, – which – if we go off the star rating guys, I mean, we had a guard that didn't get recruited out of high school, so he was a zero star. The center was a three, quarterback was a three, the tight end and the halfback were threes, the middle linebacker was a three, the, one of the best receivers was a two. I'm not going to make so, you choose which one that yeah. was, right, between the two of them? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he, every, every magazine you read, he's in the top five right now. So – What's so neat about that, though, is that, um, yeah, the fans all think that these guys, we recruit them, they should be able to play right away. The separator is always, what comes down to that is the processing. And we've had some players physically 
should you're, you're looking at them going, man, all right, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Because you're just pushing that narrative because he's so like a big safety that can run and tackle. But man, it struggles to get them out on the field. And that's why they don't make it. That's why it isn't there. And um, we also talked about the character piece, but what made that 19 team, our football S2, I, football IQ, whatever you want to call it, and you guys tested them. It's hard to believe to say there was hardly anybody below a standard that what we've seen. And we had many elite, elite brain processors. Look, I've been around a lot of talented teams. I've seen football players for 30-some years, from Deion Sanders to whoever you want to go to in today's Odell Beckhams or whoever. But the the teams that had the, the cognitive piece um, that along with the talent were the were the championship teams. Now I couldn't quantify the the processing back then, but I guarantee you, I know we tested some players like even a, a Stephen Ridley or someone like that that we tested um, that came back wanted to be tested, and he's a he, he's a second year contract guy, and he had a. I remember Brandon, you telling me, "Oh man, this guy's got some wicked processing skills. He's got a great brain." And I thought he would. I mean, if you're yeah. around it enough, your instincts yeah. will tell you that. Um. So. Well, yeah, and we've always talked about that. The S two yeah. is not to take away any coach's knowledge or no. any scout's ability. It's just no. to to understand the whys and also to, to give you a little bit of language about what you're seeing. Right. I mean, how many scouts have you and I talked about, uh, you know, who are old school scouts who are just like, this guy's going to be good. I can't tell you why. I just know. I just know. And and, and you can't take away from their tens of thousands of hours of tacit knowledge of just watching kids. But now we can give you a little bit of language about, okay, here's what's happening. And what it does I always say this. This is a statement I always make because I'm not in the talent evaluation as far as their physical and performance on the field. I said, after you guys identify what you want in a talented player, let us help you with the traits. And this is one of the traits that we need to go underneath the hood of the car for. I said, let's pick up the hood. Let's look at this engine. This is one of the traits that really make the motor run. And I think that's where it's an advantage. It, it is. I mean, it's, it's a huge advantage now. Um, so I think that's where we try to assist anybody. And, I, and look, NFL scouts parade through here. I mean, it's a dang name at every team. We've talked about this stuff. And we talk about how after they identify it, let's go through again underneath the hood of the car and let's identify these things that we know that are really important to make a player that's sustainable, sustainable, high-end player that's going to bring in value. So if you if you look at again back to processing, the average age of the top three positions in the NFL actively is the center, quarterback, and middle linebacker. I would argue to say the safety should be the next, but that's, I didn't make that up. Why, why are those guys the oldest? Well, all of a sudden you're going to take traits over talent because man, 
we need this guy because he can line up guys. He can make the right call. They're right in the middle of that defense. So you will sacrifice. All of a sudden, I don't care if he's the biggest and the strongest. I care if he can make the play. He's smart enough to hit the angles. He knows the angles. He's, he's the leader of that defense. That's not by accident those guys are, on average, the oldest players. And, uh, Jack, I, you know, I hate to let some of the cat out of the bag, but, you know, we've, we've been looking at injury, yeah. injury rates and, you know, the cognitive processing, yes. some of the subtests on S2 actually predict how many games miss per season. And so if you're slow to make decisions or you're making uh, decisions that put you in a bad physical position, you're more apt to get hurt, right? And, and in the NFL, a lot of these injuries are devastating. Right. Uh, so the, the guys who can process things quickly and make quicker decisions tend to, 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 to be longer careers, not only because they're doing well and more successful, but they're injured less. I think it helps with a kinesthetic awareness. If you know where you're going, you're in better position, you're more stable um, instead of being, you, you know, look, things happen quick in a football game. But if you're taking all the – if you're looking at the – whole population if we take everything in a, in a more of a totality i think um the guys that uh the, that i think we're going to end up seeing is that people are more stable more positioned um and and they're not getting out of position where their body's getting twisted they're they're making a wrong turn you're getting rotation on a knee or you're having an ankle that's, you know, you're moving one way, then you're going the other, then you're not getting an ankle or, or um, appendage in a position that's getting compromised. So you can keep your form better. You can keep your um, eyes on the target. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's, it should be a common sense thing, but it's nice to prove it. And, and again, that's what we always have to objectify something to prove it. And I think that's what's the, the, the purpose with all of this. Hey, Jack, we um, interviewed Kirk Cousins, and he touched on something that you actually, in discussions with Brandon and myself, you touch on quite often. And it's this understanding that, you know, what the cognitive piece brings if you're really high and you're not as physically gifted as other players, depending on the league, it allows you to further your career because you're able to do things, be in the right spot, make quick decisions. How is he always there? He's always in the right spot at the right time, making plays. And on the flip side, he mentioned that all the, you know, if you're very, very physically gifted, but you, you need that brain and, and you may not have it and you call upon it at the next level as stuff increases and in speed of the game, he was like, you're going to call on that brain and it's not going to be there. I thought it was a fascinating point by him because we talk, I mean, how often do we say that? You see it day in and day out at practice year after right, year after right. year. And, you know, quarterbacks is a whole nother animal where I think you better use this whole S2 battery. That's the one that I – it is probably one of the most predictive for sure. And um, then you better find out what your quarterback can do. Because if you're thinking you're going to call plays, and this is, the, this is who you have on their club, find out – you better find out what he does well. And because that's going to be the, definitely the difference between wins and losses. Because it's the, – the, I really feel like when you – understand the S2 and you apply it to your quarterback um, 
And our quarterback coach, Joe Sloan, has taken it to a huge second level. We actually sat in his room, myself and uh, Mario, who works with me, and we were taking notes like a player. But he wanted to see, based off the data that he had, how these kids learn. But and he wanted to sit in how they're asking questions. How are they receiving the information? Then we would talk to the player afterwards. Tell me what you liked about that meeting. Tell me what you didn't like about the meeting. Tell me, you know, some things that we maybe we can do better. And we did it for two weeks. And sure enough, um, even Coach Kelly said it was a huge, huge uh, advantage because at the end of spring, the quarterback's production went way up. I mean, it was like it was accelerated. Yes, we're going to get better with reps. We all know that. Exposure helps us all. But we've had players here that have been here. These aren't first-year players. And, you know, now we have players who go in that room and rep the practice out because, because the S2 allows us to prove that, look, we need to change up what we do in our regular meetings. Now we have something. We have an, uh, an extra layer that these kids are really excited about it, and they know it, it helps. So, but – I don't know if we could do that if we don't have that, have this tool, because when you see something on paper, you see the data, it's objectified, it changes everything. And you have data now over time. That really puts it in perspective. Which leads me right to my next question is every year, year after year, you guys get your whole entire roster tested. And when reviewing the data since we began, what, eight years ago, um, what have you found that's been most impactful for you, your coaching staff, yeah. anybody that's asking questions about, hey, how can I help this player? What, what are you finding most impactful? Yeah, I, I think obviously we talked earlier about putting players in the right position, which we have. Uh, it's something we kind of done now. We've looked at special teams. We looked at what maybe the better special teams players traits had, returners, kickoff, punt, broad spectrum special teams that played the multi-positions. Now we can look at our roster and say, well, these guys have similar traits. Now you're accelerating the process of putting people in the right position. You know, we look at we look at way football is today. You may only have these players that we have them now because of, of, of the game has changed. You may have them a little over two years, yeah. two and a half years, 2.8 or whatever it is. Well, guess what? We don't have time to develop as much. We better identify what players can play what right away. <laughs> And um, I think that, to me, is something, if you know the data, and you have somebody that understands it, that can translate it, um, put it in the right perspective, and now you have accelerated it. You know, we have a player that we just moved back there for a kick returner that no one even thought about putting him back there. And we suggested it the other day. And the player came up to me and thanked us. And um, then the coach says, no, he looks like a natural back there. But that was from the information that we got. And, and obviously, you talk to the player. Does he want to do it, too? Look, yeah, that's, that's, not a, that's not a position many people are volunteering for. <laughs> they're not volunteering. Unless they're sitting a lot. Yeah, yeah. the bullets flying. But <laughs> we always say the X factor is there's an emotional piece. There's anxiety tied in with some things. I even had a player says, I'll do anything. But the only time I had anxiety in high school is when I had a return kick. So I don't know if I want to put that guy back there. So uh, even though he may have the capacity to do it, not <laughs> wired as far as emotional. Um, look, let's not fight that. I mean, you're finding so many cool things. I, I specifically remember 
uh, I don't know if I can say his name, but a player that you had that may have blocked a field goal in an SEC game a couple years ago um, right. that li- right. literally saved a game, and you guys went to a, a bowl because of it, right? Yeah. Yes, and that was – the we do uh, a lot of testing looking at pass rush. I mean, pass rush and field goal blocks. We've created a, a thing that, again, put him in the situation, and we identified this player was – his, his get off time and, and his um, explosion to the target was exceptional. And so we identified, we put him in that position and yeah, he's, he's he won a game. It was one another one last year. And yeah, he's, he's, uh, you know, we found again, we found us something that identified, we identified it early. So we're not trying all these guys out. And, right. Um, right. Because that one is really probably the most exactly what they go through and, I had a player here, Russell Gage, who was a really good uh, special yeah. player. He just signed, I think, a big deal with the uh, – Left left the Falcons to go to the Buccaneers. Buccaneers. He had a very high F2 score, if I remember right. And um, he helped us He helped us simulate this activity that with our equipment to, to simulate what it is to block a field goal. So, again, communication with the player is critical. That's why my office sits where there's a high traffic area because <laughs> we grab them and it's easy to talk. So, uh, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, not to mention that player also had off the charts perception speed. So his ability to process things at the point of attack and focus are insanely fast, right? And and, and again, things all add up. And I think if you have all this information, you're willing to have an open mind and uh, be willing to look at these things. And, um, you know, you're going to probably uncover a lot of things that were missed in the past or that maybe were just instinctive by people that they thought they knew. Um, but look, it, it, it eliminates a lot of mistakes, I think. And uh, I always gave the, uh, the Ravens a lot of respect because if you, it's a little different, but it's still it's the same concepts of Lamar Jackson. This is what he does well. He's a mobile guy. Well, let's not make him a drop-back passer. You draft him, this is what we have to do. So I give the organization a – it's the same thing. It's the same concepts. What I'm using that as a platform to say, look, they found out what the guy does well. Well, let's keep it into that mode instead of not making something. So it's the same thing. That's what the S2 does. This is what this guy does well. Put him in this situation. What other cool findings are you uh, rum- rummaging through nowadays? The uh, S2. I think the special teams pieces was probably the the latest and greatest thing that we had, because that was just within the last week or so. Um, I think we're looking at some of the, the averages per position. We're looking at our NFL players that have had success. And we're all, obviously, we see the correlation there. We can see what the better defensive backs have. I think that was one of the biggest misconceptions. We thought as the, the cornerback was a reactive pop a minute, like a running back. No, 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 no. That is a position. Almost all of our top guys have elite scores in the S2. That is the truth. And we can see that. And, you know, we, on our roster, now we can compare. Um, yeah. And, and, but I think that was one of the biggest, I think, eye popping moments that we saw. And when we saw it, I think it had a big impact because, again, people think a, a cornerback's all just athletic ability. It isn't. Our, our elite guys are all pros. Our most productive DBs in the NFL had a certain score. It's almost equivalent to the 
quarterback. It's getting there. Well, man, when we talk to the DBs, I'm like, so let me understand this. You guys have to run routes better than the receiver. All they do is work on timing. And run backwards. And run backwards. <laughs> and, and then they have to turn their hips. Then they have to go. Then they have to estimate where they're going to be. Yeah. Then they have to you know, know the angle. That's right. And, and you and on. you can't touch them. And you're supposed to yes. do really well. Good luck. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a thing for Coach now. We're looking at all the DBs. And I'm creating this chart that looks at, matter of fact, I got it up now because I was creating it this morning. I'm looking at when they go a one-on-one, I'm looking at route. Um, and then what happened? Are they, I, I even have a piece in there. Are they grabbing the jersey? Yes. Which is Brandon's favorite one. Boom. If you're impulsive, you're going to – you're gonna impulsive. Yes. So what I'm going to look at, the guys that have a lot of jersey grabbing, I'm going to see if it ties in with the impulsivity. You prove me, prove me right or wrong, Jack? Yeah, so I have a category for Don't that. share it with us if we're wrong. What's that? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Don't share, us. Don't share it with us if we're wrong. No, no, no I'm just kidding. You're going to be right. Um, so I have, I have probably 10 different categories that I'm looking at from a different perspective than a coach. So we're looking at all the one-on-one coverages. But I, I have jersey pulling on there. I want to see. Um, I just thought about it now, Brandon. Um, but I already <laughs> have it on there just because if a guy's happened to do that a lot, you know. And look, I know a little bit goes on, but if a guy just does it every play, yeah, you know, they're gonna they're gonna get you in trouble. First of all, and I also have a marker to look at how many yards open the receiver is open, and I'm gonna. Give it a point system, then we're going to see how it comes out. So that's one of the fun things. Well, Jack, what kind of not what kind of non sports or non football things you got going on in life? That's a great question. Well, the next is the uh, drumstick venture that we're working on. So uh, <laughs> nice CNC there. I just got a fresh batch of hickory in <laughs> from Bailey Lumber. Um, we had to stack it all underneath in the garage underneath the car. So. Um, I'm, I'm running out of room, so I'm <laughs> starting to. Janet's loving it, baby. Yeah, yeah Janet's angry. I, I, I can't find the car anymore. She bakes every day, so we have cookie <laughs> stuff everywhere. She just did a show. Um, it was a bridal expose, and Coach Enzminger's wife was there. We used to be our offensive coordinator. And she looks at us. She goes, man, how come you guys aren't? You guys should weigh 300 pounds each. And all these cookies everywhere. <laughs> You guys should have a damn HGTV show. We could have. Where, uh, yeah. Janice so, Bacon and you're in there making drumsticks. The woodshed with the massive eye <laughs> goggles on. Yes. And, and, you know, she, she went to law school. She was a CFO. This is this has been her favorite thing to do in life. So That's so fun. Thing. So, uh, so we got a lot of that going on. and uh, But we're excited for the season to come up. I think we're going to be a pretty good team. Yeah, I just saw B.J. Ojolari got number 18, and I know that had to warm your heart. I know that that did. Yeah, it did. And, and you know, here's a young man. The 18 is for everyone. It's the high, it goes to the highest character. That's what it means. We started this a long time ago, and Hester, Greg Equipment guy, and myself, we thought this was a neat thing to do internally. Then it's become a big deal now. It's uh, to the College Hall of Fame. But it goes to these parameters that we talk about with high character. And again, it's one of those things we talk about. What are you doing when you're not, you don't think people are watching? And one of our coaches said, I saw him in church the other day, Bible open with his girlfriend, reading it and studying it 
and nobody's watching him, you know, and he's his family. I said, I, I can't wait till your family comes in. I want to meet them all and tell them what a wonderful young guy he is because he might be one of the best human beings I've ever been. With. I mean, he's up there. I've seen a lot of players come through, but I think he's the perfect choice. Um, you would think he's putting on an act because how kind he is and how friendly he is, and, you know, um, but it was emotional for him, which is, which is neat to see. So we always make a baseball bat for him and I have a bat signed in here by every 18. So, Oh, that's awesome. Neat deal. Yeah. Yeah. So the number 18 means a lot. It, uh, it's everything that we talk about. That is awesome. I have a, a couple stories I want to share and I want to read them just so the audience gets to know a little bit more about you and some of my interactions with different people that know yeah. you. Cause I know you don't like the name, but you're football Yoda and everybody knows who you are. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I was in Dallas at the star this past April and got a chance to talk to Dan Quinn oh, yeah. DQ for a little, yeah. uh, told him that we work with LSU and he goes, Oh, so then you're familiar, you know, with Jack. And I said, absolutely. I love getting to work with that guy. And he smiles and said, let's take a photo and send it to him. So he knows that we're thinking about him. And that, that told me so much about not only him, but also about you. If he's willing to do that and pull me aside and say, let's, send, let's take a photo and send it to him. I know you love Dan. I, uh, you know, he's one of the guys that I, I, I remember he came through here and um, when he, I, he might've been at Florida at one time. I think he was. Mm-hmm. Then he becomes the head coach of Atlanta Falcons. I remember talking to Deion Jones. They all loved him. They said, he's like the, the ultimate. And as far as a, a coach and a mentor and, you know, I, I have so much respect because as a human, it's great to see those people in the coaching profession. You know, the Tony Dungy type, the, the Jim Caldwell type, Coach uh, Bobby Bowden. We need more of those guys. And so they were playing on a Monday night game. I think they were going to play the Giants, and he wanted a, a bat for kind of inspiration. You know, let's let's make a motivational bat. So I'll do it. I'll do it. And – um and then they sent a picture of Dion holding it in the locker room. They end up winning the game. And uh, he sends me a, a game ball with Phil Necro signed because I didn't want anything. He was gonna. He wanted to send me signs. I don't. I don't need it. That's what I'm talking about. Actually, it's probably one of the best things I've ever received. <laughs> Phil Necro, Baseball Hall of Fame, 1997, um, sits right here. Um, here's the ball. There's, all, there's the Atlanta Falcon insignia. That's awesome. And That's so really cool. Um, what happened was. They all love the bat. He bought, this kind of man he is, he bought the whole building, personalized bats for everybody in the organization. And he sent me a picture of his office with all these bats. I, I still have it. He takes a picture. There's bats everywhere. That's great. So, look, it, it, when you find people of character, you better stick around. You better, you know, those are the people you want to keep. And that's what he is. I, I, um, Damone yes. Clark already loved him. They, I know they drafted him, and uh, Demond Clark's been unbelievable. And by the way, we're number eighteen. He did wear number eighteen. Um, my second story, uh, another was when we were at the NFL Combine, and we ran into Warwick Dunn on the street. It was freezing. <laughs> we're walking by. Warwick Dunn's right there. The look on his face <laughs> when he saw you, the respect and reverence that he has for you, spoke volumes to me. Seeing you took him back thirty years. Uh, when he arrived on Florida State's campus as a freshman, enduring all he had up to that point, 
I could tell immediately the impact you had on him, both as a mate and a football player. And, and it was just really cool to see from the outside. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, there's work done. And he looks at you and he's like, Jack. Yeah, you know, you know, it was so, uh, it was one of my favorite moments. And I'm glad you were there. And um, I think I told you, uh, that's when I started saying there's something with these championship teams, right? We have people like him, Charlie Ward, Derek Brooks. But I met work done two weeks, I think, after his mother was shot. She was an, she was an officer in Baton Rouge. You know, in Baton Rouge. And, and LSU at the time wasn't very good. I think they only won back-to-back, maybe two win seasons. And, and um, I, I met him on his recruiting trip. And um, he was like our sixth running back. Everybody wanted to make, wanted to make him a DB. And um, Coach Bowden says, no, you can play running back. This is 1993, and we groomed him with Charlie Ward because we felt like Charlie would be a great mentor. Charlie was a very person of faith. I mean, Charlie never cussed. Charlie was like the ultimate, right? So that's who basically he roomed with. So you have this fifth-year senior and this young man that uh, just came out of Baton Rouge and had a lot of trauma in his life. And as the year's going on, this guy, you got a few guys hurt, he starts climbing the ladder. He ends up being our starter and probably one of the most dynamic running backs I've ever been around. And we won a national championship. That year. And, you know, it, it was neat to see that, how that whole journey uh, turned out. And, and he went from that saddest moment to maybe one of the happier moments, you know, being a part of a national championship team. Have an association with Charlie. Charlie did a great job mentoring him. And um, matter of fact, that the scout that was with Washington, I was talking to you guys I think, before. He played in that game against. Uh, he was playing for Nebraska. I didn't know it. He goes, "Man, you guys had that dang work done," and he was killing us. <laughs> the kid was only, you know, he was 18 years old. He weighed 165 pounds. He was five eight. Um, and when I saw him there. You know, he was, it was just great to see him. And uh, it was neat. You know, he shared stories. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was, it was fun. So it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Your wife, Janet, amazing baker, as my wife and I got to find out yeah. this year when you invited us to the Florida game. Yeah. She sells this amazing all in one. Is oh, it a, a prep baking sheet? I know I'm not doing it justice, so you'll have no. to it's please correct me. Board. The baker's the board. board. That's yeah. right, the baker's uh, board. She has you go in the shop and making them, them, right? You have to, you make it. Yeah. Them. So, I, I think, I think you said I might need three, and I go, oh my god, <laughs> you go, what? I got to make them all. Said, they aren't easy to make. I got to put a lot of time in there. And uh, I know we made Scott Wiley uh, one for his family, and um, um, it was it was her idea. She came up with the concept, so I kind of engineered it to make it, you know, functional where you can. <laughs> Put all the flour and everything goes down into this little catch-all, and I mean, she had a great idea with it, and just made it come to fruition. And um, so, uh, no, we're, it, it's 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 been a neat little venture on those two. So there's always something. Happening. A son of a coal miner, and now look at you. There, yeah, it's where we're from. We're from a coal mining town. That's right, so, baby. Uh, right. We end this show uh, with three questions that are random and funny. Are right. you ready? Yeah, I'm good. 
If I gave you a time machine and you could go back and change one thing, what would it be and why? Mm -hmm. It's a tough question for me because I never look back at things that, um, that I would change because I think everything happens for a purpose. So I, I always believe things happen the way they do. If you do the right things and karma lends you to where you're at. So for me, it's a, it's probably a, you know, I, 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 I don't think I'd ever change anything. And, um, you know, if I could go back in time, though, I would like to see, you know, I'd go way back, you know, when when sports were you know, at, at its beginnings and meet some of the characters. And to me, that's what I would uh, like to, you know, if I, if I ever could do that. That's a great answer. Yeah. A historian. A historian. <laughs> uh, your favorite Italian dish is rigatoni's. Rigatoni, which is the name of our dog. <laughs> I, I wish you had I a photo. Probably, yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I would probably, probably eat rigatoni. I ate them last night, so we make our own sauce every Sunday. <laughs> every I should say every Sunday. It's my grandmother's who's from Naples, so but uh, probably rigatoni's. Very underrated. That's awesome. And uh, last question. What is the one thing that most people who know you well don't even know? I don't know. You guys probably kind of exposed everything. <laughs> <laughs> From hobbies to... Exposed. To, uh, that, you don't buy new, that you don't buy new cars. <laughs> yes. No, I, I don't. I typically don't. It's a bad investment. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not wise. Uh, you're, you're wasting your money. Um, <laughs> Probably, uh, my mom was. I don't. Maybe you guys know this. My mom. I think you do. My mom was born in Spain. She was 11 years old when she came to this country. Uh, she didn't meet her father until she was 11, um, because her father had to save money. The war broke out, so that's the first time she saw her her father. Um, we. Uh, my grandfather came over from Italy, and he was deported. Because he was only 15. You had to be 16. Oh. He gets shipped back, then he comes back. So our family, he started a, a restaurant. He bought a restaurant. So we came up in the restaurant business. And um, so uh, that's where we well, It's a good thing he came back. Otherwise, we'd have no good wooden we would bats. Have LSU would be terrible in football. Oh, yeah. uh, I don't know about the terrible. Harrison would have, to, Harrison would have uh, 20 hours of his week back. <laughs> I will have these deep conversations <laughs> on all this bad. Uh, yeah, so I think that would be, uh, you know, something that uh, would be, uh, yeah. That's awesome history, Jack. Yeah, that's great. Well, sorry, you don't get to see the Rook today. He's uh, yeah. he's at an appointment. The Rook. Where, how's the Rook doing? Man, the Rook is great. I appreciate you asking. He's yeah. he's good. We're not sleeping much, I, but we're I good. I still have something for the Rook. I have it. Uh, well, you – oh. I got mini bat. <laughs> First 500 into uh, Falcon Stadium, get the mini bat. Oh, man. I'm all in with that. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's such it. a pleasure. You're yep. uh, one of our favorite people yep. in sport, and we just really yep. appreciate you. No, I appreciate you guys uh, having me on.